I want to begin with a question today. And that question is, how do you know what is real or what is plausible or what is true or what is even just acceptable in your life and in the lives, lives of those around you? How do we know what is really real? As many of you may know, I am a college professor. I teach at Warner Pacific University, which is just right down the road here. It's often asserted by any number of people that college is not, quote unquote, the real world. And we're often said in colleges and universities to live in an ivory tower. I'm not exactly sure why the tower is made of ivory. It may have something to do with the expense. It may have something to do with the fact that ivory probably is not a very good building material. I haven't really looked up the engineering specs on it, but my, my guess is that, that it's not really a good structural material. Um, but I do want to let you know this morning just to allay any fears you have that the university I teach at does not have a tower at all. And we are not, as far as I know, planning on building one. Um, also too, given the current laws on importing animal parts, it's probably pretty unlikely that if we do build a tower, it's gonna be made of ivory. But I just wanted to, to make that clear. But thinking about that, how do we determine what is real, what is true, what is plausible? Why is it that so many people say that for instance, you know, life at the university is not the real world. And if it's not the real world, then what is and how do we know? You know, is it that business and building things and making money, things that are, that are practical, that that's the real world? Or is it what we do at the university, right? Uh, learning, studying, discuss discussing, debating the great ideas of, of history, is that the real world? Or is the real world you know, something else? Is it advocating for some cause? Um, what is it and what is our guide in determining what is real and what is true and what is plausible and what is acceptable? I was reminded of this a few months ago. I attended a talk at um, Multnomah University. They were doing what they called the Hebrew Bible Conference, which was a conference where they brought back graduates of theirs who had gone on to further study in Old Testament. And they were coming back and giving uh, talks in honor of one of the faculty members there. And there was a talk by um, one person um, named Travis Bott. He is a professor of Old Testament at Neshota House Seminary, which is an Anglican seminary in, in Wisconsin. And he was raising some of these same kinds of questions. That how do we know what is real in the world? Right? Oftentimes, when we think about um, you know, what is real, the world around us, our culture, our society, has one vision of what is real. And oftentimes, we come to church on Sunday, and we hear a different version of what is real. And <coughs> Travis Bott um, reminded me of an idea that I had read about a while back and had seen in other places, an idea that is, um, it's called the social imaginary. And the social imaginary is basically 
what people think about their social existence. Um, you know, it's kind of like worldview, but not as theoretical, right? Um, social imaginary guides us in determining what is true and what is real, and it's often um, something that is um, below the surface, something that is, is subconscious, that we don't necessarily think about. It is our experiences, it is our thoughts, our conceptions of the world, our emotions, our interactions with the culture, what the people around us say, all of that. <clears throat> and so what our social imaginary is comprised of um, helps us and sometimes subconsciously leads us to determining what we think is real, what we think is true, what we think is good, what we think is plausible, and so forth. And you can think about our social imaginary just in the way that you respond to any number of controversial issues. So for instance, um, I wanted to mention just one controversial issue this morning, and that's the fact that the world is round, right? And if you don't think this is a controversial issue, after church, don't do it now, after church, go on YouTube, look up flat earth, and see how many videos you find that argue in favor of the earth being flat, right? Um, we may uh, sort of snicker at that, we may think that that's kind of a ludicrous thing, but there is a whole group of people, apparently, um, at least in um, cyberspace, who think that the world is flat. And again, they would argue that we are being held captive to our view of science, our view of culture, our view of the government, what we've been taught, we've been looking at all of this stuff uncritically, and if we really looked at the facts the way they were, we would think something completely different. Um, that is the difference in social imaginary. And again, it's seen as something as being um, not necessarily at the conscious level, but for things that are not part of our social imaginary, we find those things to be foreign, we, we find those things to be nonsensical, we might even find those things to be immoral. And that brings us to our text today and two very different views of reality. The views of reality of some people in Thessalonica and the views of reality of, for some people in the city of Berea. And just to catch you up on the story, if you remember from last week, um, we were following Paul and Silas, and as Brian was, was teaching on that passage, we, we learned that they were in, in the city of Philippi. They had come there because of a vision that they had heard of, of a man from the area of Macedonia telling them to come and to, and to um, bring the gospel to them. So they had gone to the city of Philippi, they had preached the gospel, and as so often happened before, a riot ensued. Paul and Silas were um, apprehended by the authorities, they were beaten, they were thrown in prison. And then uh, eventually, uh, due to an earthquake, they were miraculously released from prison, and after their release, the people who were in charge of the city, the city leaders, um, politely asked them to leave and never come back. And so they were basically um, ushered out of the city and they ended up traveling and ended up in the city of, of Thessalonica. And in the city of Thessalonica, Paul did what he normally does. 
he went into the synagogues. Um, again, as Brian mentioned last week, Paul's paradigm was that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. So he went into the synagogues and he began preaching his standard message of the gospel. Um, we find that in verse 3, that Paul was preaching that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, and that this Messiah, and that this is the Messiah, Jesus, who I am proclaiming um, to you. So Paul was basically preaching some very straightforward, simple um, ideas about the gospel, that the Messiah had to die and rise again, and in particular, that that Messiah was Jesus Christ. Um, and as he was preaching, some people believed, some of the, the Greeks, the God-fearers, those who had been Gentiles and were somewhere in the process of converting to Judaism, and also some leading women con um, converted as well. And these may have been women who were um, the husbands of leading citizens of the of the area, or they could have been upper-class women who were, who were there on their own. But some of them believed. But on the, on the other hand, there were some, um, our text says, who became jealous. And with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in uproar. We don't know why they became jealous. Uh, the text doesn't necessarily give us specific reasons. But it could have been a lot of things. It could have been an issue of power, right? It could have been that, that these um, folks who were probably the religious leaders in the synagogues saw Paul and Silas come in, and they were afraid of their position, right? Um, the city of Thessalonica was what was called a free city in the Roman Empire. And so it was part of the Roman Empire, but the Romans decided that they were going to allow the citizens of Thessalonica to basically rule the city according to their Greek cultures and customs. And maybe they were afraid of losing that. Uh, maybe they were concerned that so many of their congregants just got up and followed Paul and didn't follow their teaching. Maybe they were embarrassed that, you know, they had been trying maybe for years and years and years to get these, these Greeks, these Gentiles, to fully convert to Judaism, and they wouldn't do it, and now Paul comes in and just in three Sabbaths gets them to convert to, to his new faith. Um, or it could have been a very real concern based on their sincerely held religious beliefs and their view that they had to protect the congregation in their care. Right? And the last of these is understandable because you know if somebody came in to our church and was invited to preach, for instance, and they began to say something that was completely different from what we believed here. Maybe they were talking about some person, maybe that person might be talking about somebody being the new incarnation of Jesus and all of us needing to go and follow that person or something like that. Surely, if that happened, our elders would be concerned about that and would probably be seeking to do something about that. Um, I'm not sure they'd be flipping through their cell phones and looking up contacts who might be ruffians to start a riot in the city. At least, I don't think they would do that. Um, but, um, you know, and on the other hand, too, if, if there was a riot in Portland over something like that, I don't think the rest of Portland would be very much impressed by it anyway. So, but, um, but they were concerned about what was happening. And... So they ended up 
uh, they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They ended up grabbing this guy, Jason, who we don't really know really anything about other than that he was entertaining Paul. So we don't know if he was a believer or not. Um, and they grabbed some of the other new believers and they dragged them before the city magistrates and their charge against them was these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting contrary to the degrees of the emperor saying that there is another king named Jesus. And these were serious charges. At this time period, it was illegal in the Roman Empire to proclaim somebody else as king, right? And kind of makes sense. You have basically an absolute dictator ruling the place. He doesn't want any competition. But also, um, from the people's perspective, if when somebody else became, was proclaimed king, one of the things that that often um, meant was that there was going to be civil war. And for the people who got caught in between these two opposing forces, that was not good. And in the area around Thessalonica, in that area of Macedonia and northern Greece, there had been several civil wars that had gone on in the past. And so there was cultural memory here about what could happen if another king was proclaimed. And so, um, you know, I could see why this would be something that would be troubling to many people in this city. One other thing I wanted to mention about this, um, about this incident, though, is that the wards that they, that the um, leaders of Thessalonica said to the magistrates that these people here have been turning the world upside down, that they are acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor and saying that there's another King Jesus. They were absolutely right. That is exactly what Paul was saying. They got his message that there is another king, that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And that um, the purpose of the gospel is to take the world that we have and to make it right, to change it. You know, Paul probably wouldn't have maybe agreed with the idea of turning the, that he was turning the world upside down. As um, scholar N.T. Wright points out, Paul might more likely say that he was trying to turn the world right side up because sin and death had already turned the world upside down and he was trying to, to reverse that. But I think an interesting question here is the Jewish um, religious leaders in this case, they heard what Paul said. They knew what he said, they didn't misinterpret it, but yet they didn't believe. They were like that seed that, when we read about the parable of the sower, that didn't fall on the good, on the good ground. And I think it's easy um, for us to say, well, you know, that's because the Holy Spirit didn't work in their lives, right? Which is true. I think that's the primary cause that, for whatever reason, in God's wisdom and sovereignty, um, the Holy Spirit did not convince these folks that the gospel was correct. But I think there's also a number of secondary reasons as well, right? You know, the, um, the parable of the sower talks about how some people have the gospel stolen away by, the, um, by Satan. 
how some people, um, the gospel falls on very thin soil and, and really doesn't ever take root in their hearts. For other people, the weeds grow up around them and choke out the gospel. And so there are these secondary reasons why people don't believe. And when we think about uh, a lot of the Jewish religious leaders at this time period, you know, the idea of somebody from Galilee, a peasant, a general tradesperson um, who wasn't necessarily of noble birth, um, becoming the Messiah was not something that fit their social imaginary. Right? The idea that the Messiah would not only be killed, but killed in the cruelest and worst way the Romans could come up with, as a condemned criminal, somebody who was bringing insert, you know, accused of bringing insurrection into the land, that did not fit their social imaginary either. Also, in the Jewish thought of this time, resurrection was possible, but it wasn't going to happen until the end of time. Um, so this idea of Jesus rising from the dead now as the first fruits of the gospel, again, didn't fit what they were expecting in the, um, in, the um, I, in their idea of a Messiah. Okay, so that's, that's what happened in Thessalonica. Let's move to the city of Berea then. And our text tells us some interesting things about the city of Berea. Uh, it says, these Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. I think it's important here that we look at what Luke, as he's writing this, says about the differences between the people of Berea and the people of Thessalonica. Um, one, they, they welcomed the message eagerly. But I think we need to look at why was that the case? And I think the next phrase in verse 11 gives us an indication of that. They examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. They had a different approach. Right? The Holy Spirit for, again, whatever reason, for God's sovereign purposes, moved in a different way in their life, and they, instead of immediately reacting against the message of the gospel, decided to look into the scriptures. They decided to look into God's word to see if what Paul was preaching was true. And when we read this, I, I don't think that the Bereans were just fact-checking Paul. Right? They weren't, you know, just looking up verses to make sure Paul quoted them properly or that, you know, Paul, when Paul said he was speaking from Isaiah, he really was speaking from Isaiah or something like that. I think what they were doing, because it says it ex they examined the scriptures, that they were digging e deeper into the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was really plausible with, with, with what God had revealed to them in the past. Does this fit into the imaginary of the Jewish faith as presented in the scriptures of the Bible? And I think that made a huge difference in the way that the Bereans responded to the gospel. 
is that they were willing to search the scriptures. They were willing to examine the scriptures and allow themselves to be convinced by the Holy Spirit through the reading of the scriptures um, and come to faith through that. That leads me to another question. And I want to bring this back into our contemporary world. And I want to ask, what do we think of Paul's gospel today? Right? The idea of someone dying and rising from the dead is not any more plausible in our world than it was 2,000 years ago. Right? Um, people may say things about, oh, you know, those people who lived 2,000 years ago, they were um, you know, very superstitious and this wouldn't have been that big of a deal for them. They were sane, rational people. Right? They, they had seen people die. They knew that when people died, they stayed dead. Um, and we know that today, too. Um, we know that, or at least in, in our social imaginary for our culture, we, we know that, that resurrection doesn't happen. Right? We've never seen that. We can't study it scientifically. But for those of us in the church, what do we do with that? What do we do with that idea that Jesus rose from the dead? How does that fit into the social imaginary that we have absorbed from our culture? The idea that, that we are part of a market economy, that we are you know, producers and consumers of goods and services, that through our own um, hard work and the skills that we gain and our own talents, that we can move up the social ladder. How does that fit in with our social imaginary of what we oftentimes call the sovereign self in our society? That for an individual, what an individual desires should be what they could be able to achieve, right? We, um, we tell folks, especially younger people, you can be anything you want in life. Um, we see advertisements on the internet telling us we can have anything we want, right? As long as we could afford to buy it or at least purchase it on credit. Um, we tell ourselves in our society that if we desire something, we should be able to have it, we should be able to express it, we should be able to identify with whatever that thing is. How does that fit in with the gospel? How does that fit in with this idea that the Messiah needed to die and rise from the dead, and that Messiah was Jesus Christ? Do we make that gospel the center of our experience, or do we compartmentalize that gospel? Do we put it off somewhere in this, this portion of our life that's the religious portion of our life and just shove it over there into a closet and um, hope that it doesn't get out and turn our world upside down? Um, the Bible itself gives us some direction on this. Right? In Romans 12, 2, also written by the, the Apostle Paul, um, we read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what the will of God, what, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? We have the Holy Spirit who is working in our lives, seeking to transform us into what God wants us to be. And I believe that the Spirit doesn't just do that work on its own. The Spirit uses various 
um, means and instruments to do that, right? What we in our reformed tradition would call the idea of the means of grace, right? Things like the sacraments and prayer. And I think a very important um, means of grace that I want to just dwell on for a few minutes here is the idea of scripture as a means of grace. Um, we may just see scripture as another book, right? Um, we may see scripture just as a collection of, of stories. We may see scripture as some good moral teachings, right? The owner's manual for life. Um, and these ideas have been around for a long time within Christianity, but I want to argue that, that the Bible is even more than that. Um, Karl Barth, over 100 years ago, wrote an essay called The Strange New World Within the Bible. And in that essay, he talks about how if you go to the Bible and you're just looking for ordinary everyday things, right? You're looking for good stories or you're looking for history or you're looking for morality. You're going to find those things in the Bible, but you're going to miss what the Bible's really about. And what Bart says um, in that essay is that um, what we have found in the Bible is, as he says, a new world, right? It's not the world that we normally live in. It's a completely different place. And as he said, we find God, God's sovereignty, God's glory, God's incomprehensible love. Not the history of man, but the history of God. Not the virtues of men, but the virtues of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not human standpoints, but the standpoint of God. And so many times people go looking for, especially in our culture with this idea of the sovereign self, they go looking for something that's going to fulfill them. Bart says that when we look in the Bible, we don't find something that fulfills us, we, f we find God. And God may be fulfilling to us, but God is, is above and beyond all of that. Also, um, N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, um, tells us that living with the authority of Scripture, then, means living in the world of the story which Scripture tells. All this means that we are called to be people who learn to hear God's voice speaking today within the ancient text and who become vessels of that living word around us. According to Wright and many other theologians today, um, part of what the Bible does is it invites us into its story. It invites us not to take the Bible and make it part of our story, but to, take the Bible, but to enter into the Bible and become part of its story, part of God's story, and to learn how God works in the world and then to follow what God is doing. Um, in his book, Simply Christian, um, Wright even mentions that um, the Bible is more than we could ever imagine it to be. It is not just a book where we read about the revelation of God. Um, Wright pictures the Bible as more almost of a sacrament, where it's a place where heaven and earth meet, and God's saving and sanctifying grace flows into us. So, in our modern world, the imaginary that we see around us is about us, 
in the Bible's imaginary, the Bible's imaginary is about God. And as we finish up, I wanted to call your attention to one uh, interesting, I think, example of that that I saw in, in today's text. Um, you know, last week when Brian was preaching, um, he mentioned that Paul saw this vision when he was in the city of Troas of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and visit us. If we think about it, right, what would we expect if we saw a vision from God that said, hey, go out and do this? You know, you know thinking about our culture, right, um, and our definitions of success that, me that many, at least, people around us may have, you know, it might be reasonable to, to expect that, you know, that Paul would go into the next city in Macedonia, that he'd have thousands of people come out to listen to him, that they would all become baptized, they would start a church that would have great programs, they would start sending out missionaries all over the place, and that eventually all of Macedonia would be, you know, converted to Christ within two or three days, or something like that. Um, but if we look at the story, that's not exactly what happened, right? Um, Paul goes to Macedonia, and he goes to the city of Philippi, he, he begins to preach, he makes a few converts, and then what happens? There's a riot, he gets beaten, he gets thrown in jail, and then run out of the city. That doesn't sound exactly like what we would consider successful ministry today. Um, then he goes to the next city, he goes to Thessalonica. Again, there's a riot, right? Um, some of his new converts get pulled before the city magistrates, and he eventually gets run out of town again, right? And then he moves to Berea. He makes a few converts. He um, then, again, there's another riot. He gets run out of town. He moves somewhere else. Doesn't seem like what we'd expect for a ministry that somebody called God to. But, um, again, this was not Paul's situation. He did not... Um, necessarily feel like he was a failure because of this. He saw God's hand working even in these, in these difficult situations. Um, Paul uh, later wrote, probably not too long after he was in the city of Thessalonica, wrote the first epistle to the Thessalonians, which is probably the earliest um, New Testament text that we have. And in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel in spite of great opposition. That Paul did not see this as a failure because he knew that God was at work and that God worked through suffering, that Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again, and that the ministry that he was a part of was a ministry that involved suffering and death and then resurrection to the glory of God. And so I would argue that as we delve into the Bible, as we read and study and, and even pray through the Bible, that one of the things that we will discover is that truth and reality are deeper than what we experience. That um, what we see in our culture and the ideas and the values that we um, 
inevitably absorbed from our culture because we, we are immersed in it are not the ultimate reality. There is this deeper reality that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, as we finish up, as a college professor, um, you know, I'm used to giving out homework. And so this is your homework assignment, um, if should you choose to accept it. I'm not going to grade it, but um, one, I think, great example of looking at reality and understanding how much more real Christianity is than anything else in the world um, is presented in C.S. Lewis's great novel, The Great Divorce. Um, so if you have a chance, I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to read, read that book. Again, it's, and C.S. Lewis mentions this in the beginning in the preface, that this is not like a theological discussion on what heaven and hell is like. This is his speculation on heaven and hell, but he also delves very deeply into the nature of reality and what is real and how heaven is more real than anything else we could ever imagine. And so I would encourage you to, to look at that and commend that to you. But I want to um, go back to the beginning and go back to our question, what is real, what is plausible, what is true? And I would strongly assert to you today that what is real, what is believable, what is plausible, what is true in, the, in this world is that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead and that this Messiah is Jesus who Paul proclaimed to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us and showing us the reality of the world that you created and how you work in that world. And Father, we pray that during this week that you would open this reality to us, that you'd give us a deeper depth of understanding of what the world is like and how you are working in it, that we may work alongside of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.